Chapter 11 of Capital, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Jake Baker, October 2007. Capital, A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume 1 by Karl Marx. Translated from the third German edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling, and edited by Frederick Engels. Part 3. The Production of Absolute Surplus Value. Chapter 11. Rate and Mass of Surplus Value. In this chapter, as hitherto, the value of labor power and therefore the part of the working day necessary for the reproduction or maintenance of that labor power are supposed to be given constant magnitudes this premised with the rate the mass is at the same time given of the surplus value that the individual labor furnishes to the capitalist in a definite period of time if e g the necessary labor amounts to six hours daily expressed in a quantum of gold equal to three shillings, then three shillings is the daily value of one labor power, or the value of the capital advanced in the buying of one labor power. If, further, the rate of surplus value be equal to 100%, this variable capital of three shillings produces a massive surplus value of three shillings, or the laborer supplies daily a mass of surplus labor equal to six hours. But the variable capital of a capitalist is the expression in money of the total value of all the labor powers that he employs simultaneously. Its value is, therefore, equal to the average value of one labor power multiplied by the number of labor powers employed. With a given value of labor power, therefore, the magnitude of the variable capital varies directly as the number of laborers employed simultaneously. If the daily value of one labor power equals three shillings, then a capital of three hundred shillings must be advanced in order to exploit daily one hundred labor powers of n times three shillings in order to exploit daily n labor powers. In the same way, if a variable capital of three shillings, being the daily value of one labor power, produce a daily surplus value of three shillings, a variable capital of three hundred shillings will produce a daily surplus value of three hundred shillings, and one of n times three shillings a daily surplus value of n times three shillings. The mass of the surplus value produced is therefore equal to the surplus value which the working day of one laborer supplies multiplied by the number of laborers employed. But as further the mass of surplus value which a single laborer produces, the value of labor power being given is determined by the rate of the surplus value. This law follows. The mass of the surplus value produced is equal to the amount of variable capital advanced multiplied by the rate of surplus value. In other words, 
It is determined by the compound ratio between the number of labor powers exploited simultaneously by the same capitalist and the degree of exploitation of each individual labor power. Let the mass of the surplus value be capital S. The surplus value supplied by the individual laborer in the average day, lowercase s, the variable capital daily advanced in the purchase of one individual labor power, lowercase v, the sum total of the variable capital, uppercase v, the value of an average labor power, uppercase p, its degree of exploitation, a prime over a, surplus labor over necessary labor, and the number of laborers employed n, we have capital S equals quantity, lowercase s over lowercase v, and quantity, times uppercase v. Equivalently, capital P times a prime over a times n. It is always supposed not only that the value of an average labor power is constant, but that the laborers employed by a capitalist are reduced to average laborers. There are exceptional cases in which the surplus value produced does not increase in proportion to the number of laborers exploited, but then the value of the labor power does not remain constant. In the production of a definite mass of surplus value, therefore the decrease of one factor may be compensated by the increase of the other. If the variable capital diminishes, and at the same time the rate of surplus value increases in the same ratio, the mass of surplus value produced remains unaltered. If, on our earlier assumption, the capitalist must advance 300 shillings in order to exploit 100 laborers a day, and if the rate of surplus value amounts to 50%, this variable capital of 300 shillings yields a surplus value of 150 shillings or of 100 times 3 working hours. If the rate of surplus value doubles, or the working day, instead of being extended from 6 to 9, is extended from 6 to 12 hours, and at the same time variable capital is lessened by half, and reduced to 150 shillings, it yields also a surplus value of 150 shillings, or 50 times 6 working hours. Diminution of the variable capital may therefore be compensated by a proportionate rise in the degree of exploitation of labor power, or the decrease in the number of the laborers employed by a proportionate extension of the working day. Within certain limits, therefore, the supply of labor exploitable by capital is independent of the supply of laborers. Footnote. This elementary law appears to be unknown to the vulgar economists, who, upside-down Archimedes, in the determination of the market price of labor by supply and demand, imagine they have found the fulcrum by means of which not to move the world, but to stop its motion. End footnote. On the contrary, a fall in the rate of surplus value leaves unaltered the mass of the surplus value produced if the amount of the variable capital, or the number of the laborers employed, increases in the same proportion.
Nevertheless, the compensation of a decrease in the number of laborers employed, or of the amount of variable capital advanced by a rise in the rate of surplus value, or by the lengthening of the working day, has impassable limits. Whatever the value of labor power may be, whether the working time necessary for the maintenance of the laborer is two or ten hours, the total value that a laborer can produce day in, day out, is always less than the value in which 24 hours of labor are embodied, less than 12 shillings, if 12 shillings is the money expression for 24 hours of realized labor. In our former assumption, according to which six working hours are daily necessary in order to reproduce the labor power itself or to replace the value of the capital advanced in its purchase, a variable capital of 1,500 shillings that employs 500 laborers at a rate of surplus value of 100% with a 12 hours working day produces daily a surplus value of 1,500 shillings or of 6 times 500 working hours. A capital of 300 shillings that employs 100 laborers a day with a rate of surplus value of 200% or with a working day of 18 hours, produces only a massive surplus value of 600 shillings, or 12 times 100 working hours, and its total value product, the equivalent of the variable capital advanced plus the surplus value, can day in, day out, never reach the sum of 1200 shillings, or 24 times 100 working hours. The absolute limit of the average working day this being by nature always less than 24 hours, sets an absolute limit to the compensation of a reduction of variable capital by a higher rate of surplus value, or of the decrease of the number of laborers exploited by a higher degree of exploitation of labor power. This palpable law is of importance for the clearing up of many phenomena, arising from a tendency, to be worked out later on, of capital to reduce as much as possible the number of laborers employed by it, or its variable constituent transformed into labor power, in contradiction to its other tendency to produce the greatest possible mass of surplus value. On the other hand, if the mass of labor power employed, or the amount of variable capital, increases, but not in proportion to the fall in the rate of surplus value, the mass of the surplus value produced falls. A third law results from the determination of the mass of the surplus value produced by two factors, rate of surplus value and amount of variable capital advanced. The rate of surplus value, or the degree of exploitation of labor power, and the value of labor power, or the amount of necessary working time being given, it is self-evident that the greater the variable capital, the greater would be the mass of the value produced and of the surplus value. If the limit of the working day is given, and also the limit of its necessary constituent, the mass of value and surplus value that an individual capitalist produces, is clearly exclusively dependent on the mass of labor that he sets in motion. But this, under the conditions supposed above, depends on the mass of labor power, or the number of laborers whom he exploits, and this number in its turn is determined by the amount of the variable capital advanced. With a given rate of surplus value, and a given value of labor power, therefore, 
the masses of surplus value produced vary directly as the amounts of the variable capitals advanced. Now we know that the capitalist divides his capital into two parts. One part he lays out in means of production. This is the constant part of his capital. The other part he lays out in living labor power. This part forms his variable capital. On the basis of the same mode of social production, the division of capital into constant and variable differs in different branches of production, and within the same branch of production, too, this relation changes with changes in the technical conditions and in the social combinations of the processes of production. But in whatever proportion a given capital breaks up into a constant and a variable part, whether the latter is to the former as 1 is to 2 or 1 to 10 or 1 to x, the law just laid down is not affected by this. For, according to our previous analysis, the value of the constant capital reappears in the value of the product, but does not enter into the newly produced value, the newly created value product. To employ 1,000 spinners, more raw materials, spindles, etc., are of course required than to employ 100. The value of these additional means of production, however, may rise, fall, remain unaltered, be large or small. It has no influence on the process of creation of surplus value by means of the labor powers that put them in motion. The law demonstrated above now, therefore, takes this form. The masses of value and of surplus value produced by different capitals, the value of labor power being given and its degree of exploitation being equal, vary directly as the amounts of the variable constituents of these capitals, i.e., as their constituents transformed into living labor power. This law clearly contradicts all experience based on appearance. Everyone knows that a cotton spinner, who, reckoning the percentage on the whole of his applied capital, employs much constant and little variable capital, does not, on account of this, pocket less profit or surplus value than a baker, who relatively sets in motion much variable and little constant capital. For the solution of this apparent contradiction, many intermediate terms are as yet wanted, as from the standpoint of elementary algebra many intermediate terms are wanted to understand that zero over zero may represent an actual magnitude. Classical economy, although not formulating the law, holds instinctively to it, because it is a necessary consequence of the general law of value. It tries to rescue the law from collision with contradictory phenomenon by a violent abstraction. It will be seen later how the school of Ricardo has come to grief over this stumbling block. Footnote. Further particulars will be given in Book 4. End footnote. Vulgar economy which indeed, quote, has really learnt nothing, unquote, here as everywhere sticks to appearances in opposition to the law which regulates and explains them. In opposition to Spinoza, it believes that, quote, ignorance is a sufficient reason, end quote. The labor which is set in motion by the total capital of a society, day in, day out, may be regarded as a single collective working day. If, e.g., the number of laborers is a million, 
and the average working day of a laborer is 10 hours, the social working day consists of 10 million hours. With a given length of this working day, whether its limits are fixed physically or socially, the mass of surplus value can only be increased by increasing the number of laborers, i.e., of the laboring population. The growth of population here forms the mathematical limit to the production of surplus value by the total social capital. On the contrary, with a given amount of population, this limit is formed by the possible lengthening of the working day. Footnote. Quote, the labor, that is, the economic time of society, is a given portion, say 10 hours a day of a million people, or 10 million hours. Capital has its boundary of increase. This boundary may, at any given period, be attained in the actual extent of economic time employed. End quote. An essay on the political economy of nations, London, 1821, pages 47, 49. End footnote. It will, however, be seen in the following chapter that this law holds only for the form of surplus value dealt with up to the present. From the treatment of the production of surplus value, so far it follows that not every sum of money or of value is at pleasure transformable into capital. To effect this transformation, in fact, a certain minimum of money or of exchange value must be presupposed in the hands of the individual possessor of money or commodities. The minimum of variable capital is the cost price of a single labor power, employed the whole year through, day in, day out, for the production of surplus value. If this laborer were in possession of his own means of production, and were satisfied to live as a laborer, he need not work beyond the time necessary for the reproduction of his means of subsistence, say, eight hours a day. He would, besides, only require the means of production sufficient for eight working hours. The capitalist, on the other hand, who makes him do besides these eight hours, say, four hours surplus labor, requires an additional sum of money for furnishing the additional means of production. On our supposition, however, he would have to employ two laborers in order to live on the surplus value appropriated daily, as well and no better than a laborer, i.e., to be able to satisfy his necessary wants. In this case, the mere maintenance of life would be the end of his production, not the increase of wealth, but this latter is implied in capitalist production. That he may live only twice as well as an ordinary laborer, and besides turn half of the surplus value produced into capital, he would have to raise, with the number of laborers, the minimum of the capital advanced eight times. Of course he can, like his laborer, take to work himself, participate directly in the process of production. But he is then only a hybrid between a capitalist and a laborer, a small master. A certain stage of capitalist production necessitates that the capitalist be able to devote the whole of the time during which he functions as a capitalist, i.e., as personified capital, to the appropriation and therefore control of the labor of others and to the selling of the products of this labor. Footnote. Quote, the farmer cannot rely on his own labor, and if he does, I will maintain that he is a loser by it. His employment should be a general attention to the whole. His thresher must be watched, 
or he will soon lose his wages in corn not threshed out. His mowers, reapers, etc., must be looked after. He must constantly go round his fences. He must see there is no neglect, which would be the case if he was confined to any one spot. End quote. An inquiry into the connection between the present price of provisions and the size of farms, etc., by a farmer. London, 1773, page 12. This book is very interesting. In it, the genesis of the capitalist farmer, or merchant farmer, as he is explicitly called, may be studied, and his self-glorification at the expense of the small farmer, who has only to do with bare subsistence, be noted. Quote, the class of capitalists are from the first partially, and they become ultimately completely discharged from the necessity of the manual labor. End quote. Textbook of Lectures on the Political Economy of Nations by the Reverend Richard Jones, Hertford, 1852, Lecture 3, page 39. End footnote. The guilds of the Middle Ages therefore tried to prevent by force the transformation of the master of a trade into a capitalist by limiting the number of laborers that could be employed by one master within a very small maximum. The possessor of money or commodities actually turns into a capitalist in such cases only where the minimum sum advanced for production greatly exceeds the maximum of the Middle Ages. Here, as in natural science, is shown the correctness of the law discovered by Hegel in his logic that merely quantitative differences between a certain point pass into qualitative changes. Footnote. The molecular theory of modern chemistry, first scientifically worked out by Laurent and Gerhardt, rests on no other law. Addition to third edition. For the explanation of this statement, which is not very clear to non-chemists, we remark that the author speaks here of the homologous series of carbon compounds, first so named by C. Gerhardt in 1843, each series of which has its own general algebraic formula. Thus the series of paraffins, CnH2n plus 2, that of the normal alcohols, CnH2n plus 2O, of the normal fatty acids, CnH2NO2, and many others and the above examples, by the simple quantitative addition of CH2 to the molecular formula, a qualitatively different body is each time formed. On the share, overestimated by Marx, of Laurent and Gerhardt in the determination of this important fact, see Kopp, and Wicklung der Chemie, Munich, 1873, pages 709, 716, and Schorkemer, The Rise and Development of Organic Chemistry, London, 1879, page 54. Signed, Frederick Engels. See letter from Marx to Engels, 22 June, 1867. For Hegel's formulation of the idea in the logic, see remark, examples of such nodal lines, the maxim, nature does not make leaps. End footnote. The minimum of the sum of value that the individual possessor of money or commodities must command in order to metamorph himself into a capitalist, changes with the different stages of development of capitalist production, and is at given stages different in different spheres of production, according to their special and technical conditions. Certain spheres of production demand, even at the very outset of capitalist production, 
a minimum of capital that is not as yet found in the hands of single individuals. This gives rise partly to state subsidies to private persons, as in France in the time of Clobert, and as in many German states up to our own epoch, partly to the formation of societies with legal monopolies for the exploitation of certain branches of industry and commerce, the forerunners of our modern joint stock companies. Footnote. Martin Luther calls these kinds of institutions the company monopolia. End footnote. Within the process of production, as we have seen, capital acquired the command over labor, i.e., over functioning labor power or the laborer himself. Personified capital, the capitalist takes care that the laborer does his work regularly and with the proper degree of intensity. Capital further developed into a coercive relation, which compels the working class to do more work than the narrow round of its own life wants prescribes. As a producer of the activity of others, as a pumper out of surplus labor and exploiter of labor power, it surpasses in energy, disregards of bounds, recklessness, and efficiency all earlier systems of production based on directly compulsory labor. At first, capital subordinates labor on the basis of the technical conditions in which it historically finds it. It does not, therefore, change immediately the mode of production. The production of surplus value, in the form hitherto considered by us, by means of simple extension of the working day proved, therefore, to be independent of any change in the mode of production itself. It was not less active in the old-fashioned bakeries than in the modern cotton factories. If we consider the process of production from the point of view of the simple labor process, the laborer stands in relation to the means of production, not in their quality as capital, but as the mere means and material of his own intelligent productive activity. In tanning, e.g., he deals with the skins of his simple object of labor. It is not the capitalist whose skin he tans. But it is different as soon as we deal with the process of production from the point of view of the process of creation of surplus value. The means of production are at once changed into means for the absorption of the labor of others. It is now no longer the laborer that employs the means of production, but the means of production that employ the laborer. Instead of being consumed by him as material elements of his productive activity, they consume him as the ferment necessary to their own life process, and the life process of capital consists only in its movement as value constantly expanding, constantly multiplying itself. Furnaces and workshops that stand idle by night and absorb no living labor are a mere loss to the capitalist. Hence, furnaces and workshops constitute lawful claims upon the night labor of the work people. The simple transformation of money into the material factors of the process of production into means of production transforms the later into a title and a right to labor and surplus labor of others. An example will show, in conclusion, how this sophistication, peculiar to and characteristic of capitalist production, this complete inversion of the relation between dead and living labor, between value and the force that creates value, mirrors itself in the consciousness of capitalists. During the revolt of the English factory lords between 1848 and 1850, quote, 
the head of one of the oldest and most respectable houses in the west of scotland messrs carlyle sons and company of the linen and cotton thread factory at paisley a company which has now existed for about a century which was in operation in seventeen fifty two and four generations of the same family have conducted it this very intelligent gentleman then wrote a letter footnote reports of inspection of fact april thirtieth eighteen forty nine page fifty nine and footnote then wrote a letter in the glasgow daily mail of april twenty fifth eighteen forty nine with the title the relay system in which among other things the following grotesquely naive passage appears quote, let us now see what evils will attend the limiting to ten hours the working of the factory they amount to the most serious damage to the mill owner's prospects and property if he i e his hands worked twelve hours before and is limited to ten then every twelve machines or spindles in his establishment shrink to ten and should the works be disposed of they will be valued only as ten so that a sixth part would thus be deducted from the value of every factory in the country footnote local citato page sixty factory inspector stewart himself a scotchman and in contrast to the english factory inspectors quite taken captive by the capitalistic method of thinking remarks expressly on this letter which he incorporates in his report that it is quote, the most useful of the communications which any of the factory owners working with relays have given to those engaged in the same trade and which is the most calculated to remove the prejudices of such of them as have scruples respecting any change of the arrangement of the hours of work and quote and footnote to this west of scotland bourgeois brain inheriting the accumulated capitalistic qualities of four generations the value of the means of production spindles etc is so inseparably mixed up with their property as capital to expand their own value and to swallow up daily a definite quantity of the unpaid labor of others that the head of the firm of carlyle and company actually imagines that if he sells his factory not only will the value of the spindles be paid to him but in addition their power of annexing a surplus value not only the labor which is embodied in them and is necessary to the production of spindles of this kind but also the surplus labor which they help to pump out daily from the brave scots of paisley and for that very reason he thinks that with the shortening of the working day by two hours the selling price of twelve spinning machines dwindles to that of ten end of chapter eleven of capital volume one